My wife and I spent two weeks in Europe this summer, the first time we returned to Europe since the pandemic. I learned early in my career that if I wanted to rest and get it away from it all, I had to leave the country. Otherwise, I would end up watching the news and reading newspapers every day, reviewing scholarly journals, making phone calls, and frankly, you know, bumping into people I knew or who knew me and would seem like only half a vacation, and sometimes I even ended up working. So for decades, I've followed the wisdom of the ancient sages, whose many brilliant observations include sage advice on how to rest. When the rabbis were asked, how should a Torah scholar spend the day of rest, spend Shabbat, they responded, he should go out into the fields and commune with nature. So that's what we do. I don't study Torah. I don't read professional journals. I commune with nature when I'm on vacation. Mind you, it's not camping out in a tent, God no. <laughs> you know, I did enough of that in my three years of military service to last a lifetime. That was enough for me. It's not hiking. No, no. I did enough of that in my three years of military service to last a lifetime. But we do often plunk ourselves down on some European mountaintop or in the middle of a field, as long as they have a good restaurant, and just watch the roaring rivers and the mountain lakes, the whole sky in my face, summer breezes in my hair, and a beer in my hand. Alhar alilach. Go up to a high mountain, Isaiah urges, you who bring good news to the Jews. So that's what I do. And when we have our fill of nature, we go into some close-by town and wander the streets for an overnight interlude. By the way, when the rabbis were asked how a farmer should spend Shabbat, they responded, he should come in from the fields and study Torah. That's good advice for you. In other words, if Torah study is not your full-time vocation, the rabbis urge learning on days of rest. You should try that sometime. If you have precious little time in the year to devote to Jewish study, a kind of dubious proposition to begin with because, you know, we all have time for what we prioritize in life, but still, you, you catch my drift. You know what I mean. If in the course of your daily responsibilities you just can't give Jewish learning the priority it deserves, do it on vacation. Read a good Jewish book. Audit some kind of lecture online. Catch up with my podcasts. Step away from reading the company's profit reports and read the reports of our prophets. Stepping away from my daily discipline gives me time to think more deeply. And sometimes I come up with what I think are quite profound observations, which I share with you on the High Holy Days. Like, for example, here's something that dawned on me this summer. Did you ever think that to the untrained ear, German sounds slightly rude? You know, while dining in a Black Forest Weinstube this summer, that's a kind of upscale German drinking tavern. The owner of the establishment bounded up to me and offered me Feinschmeckel. 
I was taken aback, you know, it sounded like some kind of vulgar Yiddish reference that I would overhear my parents talked about when they, when they were talking with their siblings, you know, certainly didn't sound like something a rabbi should want at any time, let alone in public. You know, but I looked it up on my phone, all the owner meant was to offer me fine dining, fine schmeckle. The next day we drove out of town taking the Ausfahrt to the Autobahn, that's not a rude word either. Passing a schmuck store on the way, that's a jewelry store in Germany. But here is a really poignant thought that dawned on me this summer that I wanted to share with you. We are a traveling people. You've heard the term wandering Jew. But it's more than just roaming the lands of Europe, Asia, and Africa in search of refuge after the Romans destroyed the Israelite kingdom 2,000 years ago. We were born in movement. There are two transformative journeys in the Torah that defined Judaism forevermore. The first words to the first Jew, Abraham, were lech lecha. Go from the place that you live to the undiscovered country. Abraham didn't even know where he was going. Lech lecha el ha'aretz aser ar'eka. Go on a journey to a land that I will show you while you're on the way. The second transformative travel experience encompasses the final four books of the Torah. Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt into the wilderness where our people eventually spent four decades. Most of the Torah unfolds in the Sinai Desert, not at home, but on the way, between leaving and arriving traveling, journeying, camping out in tents, lots of hiking. And these odysseys formed us and sustained us. They made us who we are today. Let me suggest four characteristics we acquired by virtue of our continuous journeys. One, Jews developed the spirit of nonconformity. We were born in rebellion against the status quo. Lech Lecha, Abraham, leave this place of idol worshipers lest you become one of them. Shalach et ami, Moses, go down to Egypt and demand that Pharaoh let my people go. The long night of slavery is ending. No longer will the world consider slavery, human bondage, a natural and just practice. Jews challenge the status quo. We are committed to smashing idols of power that justify the exploitation and degradation of fellow human beings. We challenge authority with the authority of moral challenge and contest power with the power of moral contest. We do not reject power per se, to the contrary, we believe that given the world as it is today, power is necessary to prevent evil, but it must be exercised justly. When you come to attack a city, the Torah commands, first offer terms of peace. It is the willingness to challenge convention that perhaps most characterizes our people. Think of all those groundbreaking Jewish geniuses, way out of proportion to our numbers, who contributed so much to humanity and to modernity as we know it. 
Sigmund Freud once observed that part of the success of Jewish scientists was their creative skepticism arising from their essential nature as outsiders. As a Jew, I was prepared to join the opposition and do without agreement, he said. The great Jewish physicist and Nobel laureate Isidore Rabi once asked how he became a scientist. He responded, my mother made me a scientist without ever intending it. Instead of asking me, what did I learn in school today? She always asked me, did you ask a good question today? Did you challenge conventional thinking? Even those unlearned in Jewish texts, or those who turn their backs on Judaism, absorbed this fundamental spirit of nonconformity. They were the product of 2,000 years of Jewish conditioning and could not shed their heritage even if they tried. As Einstein once said, a Jew who abandons his faith is like a snail who abandons his shell. He's still a snail. Two, we are a demanding and argumentative people. The Israelites complained bitterly throughout their 40 years of wandering. They rebelled against Moses repeatedly. That's what camping out does to you day after day <laughs> without running water or modern plumbing. To this day, Jews find it hard to follow leaders unquestioningly. Every Jew believes that she is better and he knows more than the leader. Golda Meir once told Richard Nixon, you know, you're the president of 150 million Americans back then. You're the president of 150 million Americans. But I'm the prime minister of six million prime ministers. <laughs> Not only do we challenge our leaders, we also challenge God. Other religions are often taken aback by this theological chutzpah. In their eyes, questioning God's judgment is apostasy. For Judaism, it is natural and very ancient. We're proud of it. One of the central passages in all of human literature is Abraham's resistance to God's decision to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Will not the judge of all the earth do justice? Abraham demanded of God. Moses also challenges God repeatedly. And the rabbis teach that God was often convinced. You have taught me. They envisioned God responding to Moses. Imagine how shocking it must be for other religions to read classic Jewish texts, how a human being taught God. Even the thought is blasphemous in their eyes. The human task is to obey God, not to convince God why God is wrong. We still challenge God. The 18th century Hasidic master, Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Berdachev, famously put God on trial on Yom Kippur for failing to prevent the persecu persecution of the Jews. And he found God guilty as charged. From the beginning, we have been a contentious, rebellious, cantankerous people. We like ourselves this way. We haven't changed all that much. 
Apparently, other people complain as well, not only the Jews. I haven't seen it personally, but that's what I've been told, that from time to time, Gentiles also complain. But you know, even if they do, Jews do it the best. <laughs> At the shores of the Red Sea, caught between the approaching Egyptian army and the deep blue waters, the Israelites complain in a way that only Jews could truly appreciate. That's how you know we are the same people all these millennia later. We use the same language. The Israelites shout, Moses, there weren't enough graves in Egypt that you had to bring us out here to die? That's something my grandmother would have said in her salty Yiddish. And even after our ancestors crossed the sea, never again to be enslaved by the Egyptians, they continued to complain about everything, even the food. That's what camping out will do for you day after day. There's no meat to eat, they whine. We remember the fish we used to eat for free in Egypt. Yeah, right, the fish they ate for free in Egypt. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Some of you who are a bit older, you might remember that 1984 presidential campaign when Walter Mondale released an ad accusing Gary Hart of vapidity. Remember that? And he used the slogan, where's the beef? That was from that old Wendy's commercial, where's the beef? See, that's how Gentiles complain. When they say, where's the beef, they mean, explain yourself. What is the substance of your argument? Our ancestors literally meant, we are sick of this manna and bland desert food. We want pastrami on rye. <laughs> the journey through the wilderness was difficult. It took much longer than expected. But by the end of it, our people possessed personal and national attributes that could have only been acquired through traveling, through movement, breaking away and passing through hardship. They became self-reliant and filled with the vigor of a nation of free men and women. The 40-year odyssey refined them as fire refines metal, the rabbis say. The wilderness broke the Israelites down so that they could be sent forth on a new morning, a new people, a nation devoted to freedom, righteousness, and justice. That's why we still argue and complain incessantly. We care. If we didn't care, we wouldn't quetch. We would be placid. We would develop a religious philosophy of acceptance and resignation. But that's not Judaism. We believe that the world can be different. We are prepared to get into the arena and do our part to make things better. We argue so much even about little things because Judaism always emphasized this world over the next world. The heavens are for God, wrote the psalmist. The earth God gave to human beings. We want to make things better in the here and now. We do not consider our earthly lives mere way stations to the next world. 
That's why it seems to us that every little injustice, every little unfairness, bothers us. Three, Jews are a hasty and impatient people. We are restless. We can't seem to sit still. We are constantly on the move. There's just so much to do. Have you ever observed how Jews even walk the streets, you know, rushing, swinging our arms, walking by people? And if you've ever been to Israel, it's that on steroids. I still find it difficult to wait in line for anything, having been trained as a teenager that lines are for suckers. It always seems like Jews need to get somewhere, and we're always late. We've been this way from the beginning. We read in the Talmud of Rabbi Zira, who went up to the land of Israel and reached the Jordan River at the very embankment where the Israelites crossed into the Promised Land millennia before. If you come with us to Israel, this December, there's still room, I'll take you to that place, that place where traditionally the Israelites crossed. It's an unbelievable, exciting place. Rather than wait for a ferry to allow him to cross, Rabbi Zira grasped a rope that stretched across the water like a bridge, and he crossed the river himself. When he reached the other side, a certain stranger said to him, you Jews, you hasty people. You're always clinging to your hastiness. We were like that 2,000 years ago. Rabbi Zero responded, I stand at the place where Moses and Aaron were forbidden to cross. Who can assure me that I should be worthy of crossing into the promised land, so I must make haste, lest something happen to me before I complete my journey. Nothing is certain in life. We should take nothing for granted. Who can assure us that we will still be able, still be healthy, and still be safe tomorrow? We have learned through hard and bitter experience that Jews may be secure one year and persecuted the next. At the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph is hailed as the savior of Egypt. One chapter later, there arose a new pharaoh who did not know Joseph. In the early 20th century, Jews were at the pinnacle of German society. Within a generation, they were exterminated. There's a new play by this genius, Tom Stoppard, on Broadway now called Leopoldstadt. It describes how Jews were the very apex of Viennese society in the late 19th and up to the 20th century, the 1930s. It's hard to imagine Viennese life without the Jews. They were affluent, educated, accomplished, and mostly assimilated. Overnight, they were turned on. We never really feel settled. In the back of our minds, we have this dull, ever-present voice reminding us to keep a suitcase packed. We may need to embark on a long journey away from home, quickly. They can turn on us at any time. And even if it seems an overreaction, can you blame us? We were often at the forefront of great advances, but never fully accepted. Soon after revolutionizing the world of physics, Einstein declared in Paris, 
If my theory of relativity is proven successful, Germany will claim me as a German and France will declare me a citizen of the world. Should my theory prove untrue, France will say I'm a German and Germany will declare that I am a Jew. The 40-year sojourn in the wilderness taught us that no one ever really fully reaches their destination. The Torah ends with the Israelites on the other side of the Jordan River. Moses, Aaron, Miriam, and the entire generation of the Exodus, save for two, Joshua and Caleb, died without ever stepping foot in the promised land. They die on the way, always journeying, never arriving. It's characteristic of the life of a person and the life of a nation. We do not actually arrive. There's always more to do. We aspire to a more perfect union. We pursue happiness because we realize that if we ever actually found happiness, we'd be miserable. <laughs> no one leaves this world having even half their desires fulfilled. John Kennedy, in his seminal book, Profiles in Courage described the sentiments of John Quincy Adams, who had served as president, secretary of state, congressional leader, professor, American minister to European powers. He had a long and exceptionally productive and successful career. At age 70, looking back on his life, Adams wrote this in his diary. My whole life has been a succession of disappointments. I can scarcely recollect a single instance of success in anything that I ever undertook. And since we do not actually arrive at the destination, we have learned that our lives are an end in themselves. The value is in having lived and experienced the journey. The generation of the Exodus that died in the wilderness still had a critical role to play. They didn't reach the promised land, but had it not been for them, their children would still have been slaves. The destiny they had was to journey on, setting the stage for generations to come. And if our journey was interesting, exciting, and complete, then we shall look back even at the hardships of life and will recall them with special delight because of the dangers we have surmounted. Robert Louis Stevenson wrote, it is true that we shall never reach the goal. It is even more probable that there is no such place. And if we live for centuries and were endowed with the powers of a god we should find ourselves not much nearer to what we wanted at the end. Oh, toiling hands of mortals, feet traveling, ye know not whither. Soon, soon, it seems to you, you must come forth on some conspicuous hilltop and but a little way further against the setting sun descry the spires of El Dorado. Little do ye know your own 
blessedness for to travel hopefully is a better thing than to arrive and true success is to labor the last point four the last point I want to make is this Jews have a right to be different the willingness to be different is integral to Judaism. Don't rush to be like everyone else. Convention is conventional and often boring. That's not our role. That's not why God singled out Abraham, Moses, Jonah, and the Jewish people. Anyone can be a conformist. Be a Jew. Lech lecha. Stay on the Jewish road, even if you don't know where the road ends, and even if the road ends short of the promised land. Be proud of who you are. Don't stray from the path. Stand by the road, Jeremiah preached. Ask the good way and walk on it and find rest for your soul. This generation of American Jews seems lost. Looking back, I think the most noticeable change to travel in my lifetime has been GPS. The taxis to the airport are essentially the same. The road to JFK is basically the same, even worse. You know, that construction project where the Grand Central meets the Van Wyck clogging traffic for miles in both directions. It seems like a permanent feature of New York life. They were building that when I first came decades ago. <laughs> Airplanes are essentially the same. Cars are a little changed. The mountains, the valleys, the villages, the towns and the cities, even many of the hotels and restaurants we frequent are the same they were all those years ago. GPS is different. It allows us never to be lost. We used to take these large, colorful, foldable papers with them. I, I think they used to call them maps. <laughs> Since I was the driver, my wife was the navigator or the map reader. Now, I'm not going to detail our marital discussions in public. But suffice it to say, all these years later, I'm still traumatized by circling all the one-way streets in Verona trying to get into the city three times. Each time, energetically reminding Allison to look at the map and to tell me where to turn. And I still remember those pugnacious Italian drivers who were forcefully communicating to me what they thought of my driving skills. <laughs> so we'll try to go and tell the Italian drivers it's not my driving skills, it's my wife's map reading abilities. And you know, we have never returned to Avignon after trying and failing to figure out how to get inside the city walls. We just gave up and left permanently. <laughs> we haven't been back since. In fact, to this day, if I come within 50 miles of Avignon, that unique frustration of being turned away at the city gates overwhelms me, and I associate Avignon with frustration and anxiety. Nowadays, we just punch in the destination, and the computer takes us there. 
GPS has taken away much of the uncertainty of traveling. There's no reason ever to get lost. In fact, one of those GPS systems is called Never Lost. The computer even calculates alternative routes. We saved hours this summer because the GPS lady figured out that we should exit the highway off the Autobahn before reaching a massive traffic jam that would have wasted half of our day. And she was so polite about it. <laughs> Even when I ignored her, she never lost her temper with me. She stayed doggedly loyal, just calculating and recalculating routes irrespective of my impertinence. But remember, GPS only takes you where you, you say you want to go. The computer lady doesn't decide for you. You decide your destination. And the computer makes it easier for you to go where you said you wanted to go. Where do you want to go? Stay on the Jewish road. If you do, you might get frustrated, upset, impatient. You might even be hated. But you will never be lost. Stay on the Jewish road and find rest for your souls. Don't bury Judaism under some bland, white-bread impulse of homogenized sameness. What's so exciting about being like everyone else? Being like everyone else is contrary to the Jewish spirit. We are a small, stubborn, stiff-necked, steadfast, staunch, stout, strong-willed people. We are tenacious, persistent, and relentless. It's part of our charm. Our different historical experiences led to our unique sensitivity to injustice and cruelty. Our long, hard journey out of idolatry and slavery is what gives deep appreciation of social repair and freedom. We are sworn to uphold human dignity and be proactive in repairing the world. But not only that. God chose Abraham from among all the peoples of the earth. On wings of eagles, God brought the enslaved nation to the holy mountain. The Lord God chose you to be his treasured possession from among all the peoples of the earth. Not because you were the most numerous, but because you were the smallest of nations. From the burning bush, God sent Moses back to Egypt with these words. Thus says the eternal God, Israel is my child, my firstborn. That's who we are. Your people are God's firstborn. Those 40 years in the wilderness were so contentious and so rebellious that one wonders why God stuck with us. After all, God threatened our destruction in the desert. 
Leave me be, Moses, so that my wrath will consume them and I will make your descendants a great nation. Why didn't God follow through? Why was God persuaded by Moses' plea to spare the people? We don't actually read the answer until much later in the Bible, in the book of Jeremiah. And the word of God came to Jeremiah, say to Jerusalem, I remember the devotion of your youth. Your love was as a bride's love. I remember how you followed me in the wilderness in a harsh land, a land not sown. God stuck with us then and sticks with us now because of the devotion of our youth. How when we were young, all those millennia ago, we loved God as a bride loves the groom. And despite it all, we followed God through the harsh, unforgiving wilderness. With all our grumpiness, with all of our complaining, our dissatisfaction, we had the courage to be pioneers, to journey on, to cross the desert, to reach the promised land. The last chapter of the Hebrew Bible also refers to a journey. Chapter 36 of Second Chronicles describes Cyrus, the king of Persia, who conquered the Babylonians. It was the Babylonians who destroyed the first temple and exiled its leadership. Cyrus pursued a different policy. He wanted to restore the exiled Jews to the land of Israel so that they could rebuild the temple. And Cyrus urged the exiled Jews to journey back. The last verse of the last chapter of the Hebrew Bible is this. Mi vachem mikol Adonai Elohav imo. Those of you of God's people, the Lord God is with you. And the final word of our Bible is vaya'a, ascend. Those of you of God's people, the Lord God is with you. Vaya'a, ascend. Amen.